Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivin Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tzarek Iyun Podcast, brought to you by Yeshiva Oraita. This is David Silverstein, and today I have the privilege of being joined by Rabini Friedman, Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Oraita. Rabini, thank you so much for coming on the Tzarek Iyun Podcast. Ah, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to getting some Iyun. <laughs> All right. So this is actually the second part of a two-part series that we've been doing on uh, Divine Providence. And for anybody who didn't listen to the previous episode, so in the previous episode, we talked to Rabbi Natana Wiederblank. And Rabbi Wiederblank traced sort of two trends within uh, Jewish philosophy about different perspectives on the question of divine providence. The purpose of simplicity, let's just call them perspective A and perspective B. And perspective A, which was um, more pronounced in the medieval period, um, actually uh, had a view which assumed that divine providence was not nearly as robust as somebody may think, right? There were some great medieval Rishonim, but that divine providence was fairly limited. Therefore, in theory, it's possible that a person could go through his day, and most of his day would be governed by nature without much uh, providential intervention. But there's also view B, which was also present in the Rishonim, and certainly becomes the dominant view in the Achronim. This one assumes a much more ambitious conception of divine providence, and assumes that basically, in a certain sense, Everything is providential, right? It assumes that even, for example, if you're walking on the street and you see, let's say, a leaf falling down from a tree, so that may seem totally innocent, maybe seem totally divorced from any divine hand. But this model assumes that, no, everything, right, if understood properly, really is a function of uh, divine intervention. And it's only a question of our perception, right, of us sort of channeling our minds properly, be able to see sort of the extent to which God is intervening in our lives. Now, within Yeshiva Raita, um, there are different staff members who sort of endorse different positions. And you, Rabbini, are sort of well-known, at least in the Shiva orbit, as somebody who's very committed, both personally and intellectually, to the second view, the view which assumes a very ambitious um, role of divine providence. So I'm curious just to begin, maybe if you could speak biographically for a few minutes about sort of your own personal journey, right? At what point in your life you know, one of the mantras that you live by, you talk about it all the time in Shiva, is the idea that Hashem runs the world, certainly an expression of the traditional view, the contemporary view of Hashkacha, of divine providence. Maybe for a few minutes, if you could speak personally, biographically. At what point in your life did you really feel a sense there's a strong, divi- strong divine hand sort of guiding you every day? First of all, I, I want to thank you for having me on. This is a lot of fun. And uh, I'm enjoying your summary of two diverse perspectives. Um, Look, there are two things worth mentioning before we get into the biography of how I guess I arrived at this, at least for now, where I think what seems to make sense to me. Um, the first is, when I was in Yeshiva, I, I grew up in Manhattan uh, and uh, went to Israel when I was 18, thinking I was going for a year. Uh, I went to learn in Yeshiva at Haritian, affectionately known as the Gush, and studied under the tutelage of, among others, Rav Lachazin and Ramital. And um, I thought I was going for a year, fell in love with yeshiva, um, decided to stay a second year and to go to the army. 
I spent uh, four and a half years in the army and then uh, came back to yeshiva and studied for smicha for the rabbinate. And I remember uh, at one point during our rabbinical studies, most of us knew that we weren't going to be posting. I wasn't, you know, I think to, to choose to be a, an arbiter of halacha, you have to spend years and years literally swimming through shas, through, you know, the Talmud and, and, and the medieval authorities, Rishon, Macron, et cetera. And, and I knew that wasn't my path. But one of the boys asked from Shlomo Levi, who was the head of the Kolel, whether he would be willing to give a, ser- a series of lectures on the topic of Psak, how we rule in the world of Halacha. And he agreed, and it was fascinating. So I went, um, and uh, he gave a series of talks on how we pass in Halacha. And I remember in one of the classes, he quoted the Maharal, Maharal of Prague, right? Um, 17th century, uh, very often an individual voice. Um, and he wanted us to know that we don't paskin like this psak of the maral and had a paskin and had a rule, but it's a powerful idea. The maral basically says you have to study a topic, you have to study a sugya from A to B. You have to go through, you know, the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Gemara, you know, the Rishonim, the Achronim, all the way down through the halacha and the poskim. And you really have to own a topic. And when you've really studied something from top to bottom and you really own the topic, then you have to ask yourself, what do you think? Because what you think the Gemara is saying, what you think the rabbis are saying, that's how you have to rule. Because because your neshama, your soul needs that ruling. That's how Hashem sent you to understand that particular perspective. And well, we don't pask in that way in halacha. You know, we have certain rules. If the Rambam, the Riff, and the Rush, two out of three, and I understand that. <clears throat> it's a powerful idea. I think that's definitely true in the area that we're discussing. It's true that there are divergent views on, on divine providence. But w- I, I think when you feel that one of those pathways speaks to you, then perhaps <laughs> it's almost divine providence that you're meant to see divine providence that way. So, you know, speaking about your, your biographical upbringing is really, in essence, the path that Hashem put you on in order to arrive at it. It's sort of a chicken and egg circular reasoning, but but I, I think it's really true. So I grew up in Manhattan. Um, I grew up in a tough neighborhood until uh, I was the age of 10. We lived on 124th Street in Amsterdam. Yeah, I came home uh, one particular day with a bloody nose and a cracked rib. I had been, you know, Take it into a corner. And by the way, I don't feel traumatized by this. It was just all my friends had. Like I had a lot of friends who got mugged all the times or whatever. And um, I, two kids basically took me into a corner. You know, they wanted to steal my lunch money or whatever it was. And, you know, I got beaten up. And I think my parents finally decided enough was enough because I was starting to become afraid. You know, they didn't want my, their kids to go up scared. So we moved. And we happened to move into a Riskin's community known as Lincoln Square Synagogue. Really, in its heyday, uh, it was really Camelot. Um, you know, I guess we can get more into this if you want to, but he was a very charismatic speaker, a Talmud Mufak of Soloveitchik, and, and he was a masterful storyteller. So at age 10, since I really didn't have any friends yet, we had just moved into the neighborhood, I started staying in for his drushas because he would always start with an amazing story. And I think his thinking very much influenced me. My parents, and particularly my mother, is a big believer in divine providence. She davens three times a day. 
you know, you can go out and do the groceries and come back and she's still dominating. And I think those two figures, along with Rebecca, had had a huge influence on me. So if you ask where it started, um, when I was 18, I went to Gush, like I said. Um, after two years, I went into the Army. I had a lot of experiences in the Army. I think at a certain point, you just decide everything is either random or it has purpose. But I guess you're going to get into that. So I'm curious, you mentioned before the issue of sort of transitioning, let's say, from a difficult neighborhood uh, in lower Manhattan to eventually you know, moving to Israel and you know, being in the Army for four and a half years, which is a significant period of time. I'm curious if you could speak for a minute or so about the extent to which your faith and your conception of divine providence sort of crystallized uh, during that period. I mean, anybody who knows you or has heard you speak knows that you have like really extraordinary stories from the time of the army. I mean, even independent of your army service, you survived the terror bombing, the Sabaro bombing. Just in terms of your own life experience, transitioning from childhood, moving more towards uh, army time and experiencing sort of you know the divine hand in that context. Can, can you think about a moment or moments in the context of your army service, you really felt exactly what you're describing, that what's going on must be to a certain degree providential, because otherwise it's just totally random. And, you know, having a more providential conception of the world sort of helps helped you, you know, navigate those difficult times uh, during your army service? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I've been thinking about this because you, you sent me a couple of questions to think about. It, and one of them was, you know, at what point in your life does, did you start adopting this perspective, et cetera? I don't know that I can point to one particular or a couple of particular incidents. Because like I said, I really think that I grew up with this. In fact, for me, it was the opposite. I was quite surprised to discover, I mean, I hope we'll get into discussing it, that there is a significant opinion in Jewish tradition that says that not everything is divinely ordained. I mean, I remember the first time seeing in the Rambam and the Murnavuchim that actually he believes that depending who you are, obviously, that there are major events in one's life that are directly the hand of Hashem, like birth, death, you know, marriage. And most of it is just part of the nature that Hashem created. I still have a hard time with that. I think that that you kind of grow up with this perspective and it gets strengthened. But I, I'll give you an example, um, maybe two. I have a cousin, um, Hashem Yikom Demo, Benji Hillman, who was a company commander in Egoz. And he was uh, killed in the Second Lebanon War um, not a month after he got married. It was a, a dystopian tragedy. I mean, just heartbreaking. And um, believe me, we could do a podcast just on that story. But um, after a few years, I got the courage to ask my cousin, Danny Hillman, his father, uh, he's actually married to my cousin, um, whether he'd be willing to speak to the boys in yeshiva before Yom Hazikaron, before Memorial Day. And he acquiesced. And um, he's a very circumspect speaker. He's a, you know, he just tells the story. What's really powerful about his presentations, and I'm sure you were there for some of them, um, at the end of his sort of talk, he opens up the floor to questions. And, you know, there's usually this hesitant pause. People aren't quite sure, you know, and he finally says, look, there isn't a question you can ask me. I haven't been asked. You have an opportunity to, to, to ask questions of someone. You might not meet someone like me again. So then they start to sort of delicately begin to ask questions. Then the questions get very intense. I still remember, it was the third year of Araida. Stevie Fine, whom I'm sure you'll remember, um, asked him, did this affect your emunah? Did this affect your faith? Now, I never had the courage to ask him that question. You could hear a pin drop in the room. And he didn't hesitate. He said, no, of course not. So there was like shock in the room. Like people didn't expect that answer. 
And he said, look, you either believe or you don't believe. He said, I actually, you know, the army is very good about creating support groups. So he's had the opportunity to meet many other bereaved families who've lost, you know, sons and daughters in the army. And he said it occurred to him that the families that don't have faith, that, that actually think this is all random, have a much, much more difficult path to, to, to dealing with these types of topics. In other words, if you believe that Hashem runs the world, then as you look at your life, you discover meaning in everything around you. So it isn't so much a particular event as much as as you look back at events, you're forced to consider what they mean and why they happen, something which for the person who believes life is random doesn't do. Now, let's say the perspective that says that divine providence is ever present, let's say they're wrong, but they still go through life struggling with why things happen to them and why things happen in the world around them, and whether there's meaning in those topics, they're still better off. I think it's just on a practical level. Right. It's interesting. You know, the Gemara has this formulation where the Gemara will say basically that if something happens to you, right, what you're supposed to do is be mifash fesh b'masav. You're supposed to sort of right, reflect, right, brachos, right. On, your, you know, on your actions. Now, I think there's sort of one way to conceptualize that Gemara, which is to say basically that it's not a theological statement per se in terms of metaphysics. It's not about saying that everything that happens to you is necessarily a function of providence. It could just be what you're saying as sort of your second point, which is that it may just be a better type of, you know, personal and religious posture, right? Because at the end of the day, the goal is to make yourself a better person. So if you see everything as a possible sort of avenue for personal betterment, then at the end of the day, you're sort of better off, right? What, what's the alternative, right? Just sort of assume it's random, well, then you haven't gained much. Whereas if every single time you experience something, you say, you know, how can I make myself better, right? The net result in terms of your experience of the world, right, is certainly, you know, makes you a more sort of refined person. But we can sort of move for a second, um, moving away from that perspective of the pragmatic and thinking more about the philosophical. I mean, I guess, you know, sort of hearing you describe um, your perspective, I can imagine someone listening and saying that, you know, there may be some potential risks or potential downsides towards the more maximalist uh, model. Let's assume for argument's sake that a person, you know, goes about his life assuming that everything is divine. So I guess a person, there is the risk that a person starts to sort of misread the cues. You know, if you're walking on the street and all of a sudden, you know, you see some crazy person come over to you and start yelling, uh, you know, obscure prophecies. Right. So if you're sort of operating more from the perspective of, you know, that's just part of like the natural order. And this guy, you know, is sort of nuts. Well, then you sort of move on. Right. But if you really start to think about things providentially, how do you avoid the problem of starting to misread cues and by extension sort of interpreting events in ways that could be totally speculative and by extension sort of make decisions in ways that don't seem, you know, completely responsible because you're you're always looking for what the divine hand is trying to sort of push you to decide. Look, you know, the Gemara you quoted, which is in Brachos, I think, and Daf Kimmel, Daf Hay, um, says, Yisurin over and Adam, right? It's interesting, by the way, it doesn't say Ish or Nefesh, it says Adam, which some interpret to mean any human being. Um, it never says you're going to find the answer. It just says there's a value to struggling with the process, right? You know, I remember reading a story many years ago. Uh, somebody actually gave it to me or sent me an email. I, I forget. I forget. After, you know, Sparrows, there's a, a fellow walking along the beach. And um, he sees there's like a little bit of a crowd gathering and they're pointing out towards sea. 
and he looks and he see, to see what they're looking at. And he realizes they're looking at a kid. It's like a 10-year-old kid. And he's caught in an undertow and he's drowning. Now, it's a terrifying thing to swim out in an undertow, right? But I don't know if you've ever been in an undertow. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty scary experience. It happened to me and my brother once. Um, and, you know, nobody's like nobody's brave enough to venture out to try to get to this kid. But this guy happens to be a lifeguard. And he's like, you know, a good swimmer. So he jumps into the water and swims out to this kid. And he manages to get him back to shore. And as he's sort of got the boy who's obviously exhausted in his arms, walking up, you know, wading out of the water, somebody overhears this kid say to the guy, thanks for saving my life, mister. At which point the lifeguard looks down at him and says, well, just make sure it was worth saving, right? In other words, the things that happen to us, if, if you're almost constrained from ignoring them, and you're challenged to think about what they mean, the most necessary quality to avoid the pitfall you're describing is humility. In other words, there's a value to struggling with the process. There's an arrogance to presuming you have the answer. By the way, this is even more uh, uh, important or critical even when it comes to looking at other people. You know, like if, um, if that line is true, Right? That, that, that if, if you're going through travail, go through your actions, leaf through them like a book, which means something must be wrong. Then imagine you go to the hospital and you see some kid in a pediatric oncology ward and his parents are sitting there. You should say to them, listen, you are, you're obviously pretty, you know, something wrong with you guys. You got you to fix it. So that's ridiculous. And there's another Gemara. I mean, there are many, but there's a Gemara Moid Cutton that says, I think it's Rav who says, right? All the things that are important in life, your, your life, you know, your livelihood, you know, the health of your children, it's not dependent on schut, on merit, it's dependent on mazel. So, of course, the question is, well, which one is correct? Do we say that everything happens for a reason and we should leave through actions like a book? Or do we say it's all mazel? By the way, interesting, how do we rule as a collective? Right, I was at a, a wedding of a former Madrichavars, Yonah Broder, last night. Unbelievable chuppah. Just like to look at the joy of this couple. It was really, it was almost extraordinary to see them. And as an aside, to imagine that that's random would just shatter my imagination. But, but what do we say? We should say, wow, you really must be a very special person because look what you merited. No, we say mazel tov. Right? And so don't think you merited it. It's all mazel. It's all luck, randomness. What does that mean? Rav Soloveitchik actually suggests that when we look at ourselves, we should struggle with what life's suitcase that's given to us means. When we look at others, it's not our job to figure it out. It's our job to just be there for them, right? So I think the way you avoid the pitfall is just to value the process and realize there's something to learn. And imagine it might be that this is a message worth considering, but to to be humble enough to say I could be wrong. And what would you say about the, the sort of um, parallel question, which is, you know, obviously the question of Hashkach and divine providence sort of works in tandem, right, with the larger sort of uh, Jewish directive to do hishtadlus, to try your best, to make sure right. that, you know, you actually are the one who's sort of actualizing uh, the potential gift that God wants to give. You know, they tell a story that like, you know, a rabbi went to go buy a lottery ticket. 
So they asked the rabbi, you know, why do you buy the lottery ticket? Do you think the statistical probability is high that you're going to win? He said, no, but I want, I know that if God wants to give me a certain amount of money, I have to sort of provide the medium for him to do that. Right. And therefore the lottery ticket may just be that medium, but it may not. But at least if I buy it, I know I did my hishtadlo. So I think, you know, for me, and, you know, I'm sort of very sensitive where you're coming from and I, and I appreciate very much your perspective. You know, I guess for me, one of the challenges of the more ambitious view of providence is that it, it seems like, although I, I can imagine this may not be the case, it seems like it, it can lead to a situation where people feel a little bit like, you know, hishtadlus and the, their own responsibility, right, is mitigated because at the end of the day, it's in the divine hand. You know, I, I hear, I've even heard people talk about the idea that, you know, you mentioned the Gemara that talks about that uh, Parnassa, right, is ultimately decreed. Uh, during the time of Rosh Hashanah. So you could even imagine someone saying, listen, at the end of the day, like I don't have to work that much, right? Because whatever is going to come my way is going to come my way anyway, because it's all part of a divine plan. I think for me, just sort of hearing it and emotionally and sort of intellectually, you know, I guess if I had to sort of, you know, make a scale of like the divine providence versus the uh, human initiative angle, I'm personally sort of more connected to the human initiative model. And I worry sometimes if, you know, a heavy providential model can sort of lead people to say, okay, you know, it, it doesn't really make a difference how much I put in my own work, because when push comes to shove, you know, you know, Hashem runs the world. I'm curious, you know, how, how do you sort of navigate that tension? And how do you sort of, in your own life and sort of in your own teaching, advocate for a view which endorses the maximalist model, but at the same time says, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to make sure you did your hishtadlis. You have to make sure that you don't sort of act irresponsibly and sort of take advantage of the divine promise. Look, there are two things to think about here. You know, the, the the it's funny that you consider my view to be a maximalist approach. This issue possibly best demonstrates that uh, that I don't think my approach is a maximalist approach because I I don't think we're allowed to abrogate our responsibility to establish to do our bit. You know, in the, in the world of Navardic, in the Musa world, they really have a maximalist approach. They really believe that it's all in Hashem's hands. At least, again, I I, I don't know. Nevardic Bali Musser, but in reading some of the literature, um, it's all in Hashem's hands and you have to trust Hashem. There's a famous story about one of the Bali Musser that one of the Talmudim or somebody, a Balabas, was uh, really taken by this approach and he went out and he bought a lottery ticket and he quit his job and he waited for Hashem's divine hand, right? And weeks and months go by and he doesn't win the lottery. And he's, you know, he's starting to struggle. He doesn't have anything to eat. So he goes to his Rebbe. And the Rebbe says, you know what? I hear you're having a hard time. You bought this like $1,000 lottery ticket. I'll tell you what, I'll buy it off you for $500. So the guy smiles. He really appreciates his Rebbe doing that. And he gives him the lottery ticket. And the Rebbe says, you see, that's why it didn't work. Because you don't really fully believe. Because if you believed fully that you would get $1,000 on the lottery ticket, you would never sell it for $500, right? That perspective suggests you don't have to do anything, but you what you have to do is work on your faith. And if your faith is pure and whole, then it all works out, right? Now, by the way, there is a legitimacy to that approach, because if that's your approach, then whatever happens is what Hashem wills. So it doesn't matter what you do. That's true. I agree with you. That's a very problematic approach. It's not how I look at the world, right? Um, you know, the Vilna Gaon, and I think in the Evan Shlema, seems to say, you know, your bitachon, steps in only after you're established. In other words, the work of struggling with what happens is precisely that. You know, um, after something has occurred, you know, I'll give an example. Um, when I was in the army, 
right? We have an anatomy story. When I was in the army, so I eventually ended up in officer's course. And uh, it's a grueling course. The first, I don't know, four months was basic infantry officers training and that I finished. And then the next part, which is one of the more difficult courses in the Israeli army and, and just was overwhelming, especially for someone who didn't properly have a command of Hebrew, um, was what's called the Hashlama Kursinishir on the Kakash, tank officers course. And I just wasn't up to speed. And it's a longer story, but you know, every time I did a tank maneuver, a different ranking officer had to watch me do it, and I wasn't passing with the right marks. And eventually, um, you know, sort of a week before the end of the course, remember this is after a month of Mechin, four months of Barichan, another four months of Ashlamah. You've been in this like eight, nine months. You haven't slept in eight or nine. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible process to go through, at least for me it was. And uh, the brigade commander, the base commander, gets up on the tank and he wants to see me do a maneuver. Um, and I guess I didn't do well enough. You know, I was pretty nervous. Three days before the end of the course, I was called into a sort of a tribunal, the brigade commander, the battalion commander, and my company commander. And they informed me that with a heavy heart, they could not, in good conscience, send me out to command men in battle. My, my maneuvers weren't up to par, right? And so I got kicked out of officer's course. Now, because I hadn't done anything wrong, and I guess because I was an overseas volunteer, they said, usually when you get kicked out of office, you're not allowed to go back. But they said I could do the whole thing again if I wanted to. I had four days to think about this. The next course was, this was like on a Wednesday night. The next course was starting on Monday. So I, I tramped on, whatever, I ended up back in Yeshiva for Shabbat. And uh, I had to decide, was I going to go back and start this whole thing again? Um, you know, it was, middle, it was end of Zman, I went to Ravamital's shear, which I'd never been in. It was an amazing shear. And I had to make this decision. Now, how do you make a decision like that? On the one hand, if I don't go back to officer's course, then I basically, the extra time I've signed on doesn't kicked in. So I'm done with the army. I can go back and sit in yeshiva. And I know I want to go into education, be a rabbi, do smicha. And I get to sit in Ravamital's shear, Ravamital's class for the next few months, which was amazing. And, and to be back in a sleep in a real bed and have real food, whatever. Or do I go back to the army? On the other hand, I really believe that I was meant to be an officer. So how do you make a decision like that? Right? It's exactly your question. Like, just let Hashem decide. So the Vilna Gaon was a proponent of the fact that you have to struggle with these decisions. When you're done with the decision, looking back, by the way, it's worth considering how you make a decision like that because the Vilna Gaon actually offers some wisdom. If you remind me, I'm happy to share. But, but looking back, had I decided to stay in yeshiva, I would have thought that was Hashem's hand. Hashem decided I was meant to be a rabbi. And that's how my life would have worked. And had I gone back to officer's course, which I ended up doing, then I would have looked back and said, that was Hashem's hand. In other words, Hashem doesn't give you the ability. You have to make your decisions. Now, whether or not you're really making decisions is irrelevant. You know, it's like the famous question of, can God create a rock that he cannot lift, right? If God can create a rock that he can't lift, then how great is God? There's a rock he can't lift. And if he can't, then how great is God? Because I can create a rock that I cannot lift. And the best response to that, at least in my opinion, was by a German philosopher, I forget his name, um, was obviously God can create a rock that he cannot lift because God can do anything. And then he can lift it. And that makes no sense. Welcome to the world of God. We're, that question tries to put Hashem in a box. Hashem isn't in the box. Hashem created the box. In other words, we don't need to understand fully the workings of Hashem. How could Hashem create a world 
where he runs the world and everything in it, and yet we have freedom of choice, that's part of the mystery of Hashem. You know, faith begins where reason ends, right? The ability to recognize that we won't fully understand all the questions that we have, that, that's part of faith. By the way, that's part of any healthy relationship. I mean, you know, when you get married, it's only when you begin to realize that you'll never understand them that you start to understand them, right? That's just part of the game. But if you, you had to move a little bit from the individual to the national, right? Up until now, we've been talking a lot about, let's say, personal decisions, your personal biography, or different moments in your life where you've had to wrestle and struggle with decisions. And one of the points, which I think you've been making, correct me if this is not accurate, which is, I think is a powerful insight, which is that, you know, when you're trying to navigate this dissonance between divine providence and uh, free will, so w- one of the goals is to be able to struggle with the decision, right? Try your best to do your hishtadlis. But part of having the faith and part of being able to believe in this version of divine providence is to having made that decision, sort of let it go, right? Instead of being anxious perpetually about whether you made the right decision, ultimately deciding that you did the most you could possibly do, right? And therefore, the rest is in the divine hand, right? And therefore, you should feel comforted by the fact that you tried your best, right? And what's ever going to happen is ultimately a, a reflection, right, of the divine perspective. Now, if you just sort of um, sort of zoom outward for a second, I think obviously, you know, even if you're somebody who is not as, let's say, committed, the vision you're describing, I think it's hard to be sort of... Um, um, agnostic about the extent to which Jewish history, right, is something which is really remarkable and something which seems to be, you know, really guided by a sense of the divine. So if, if you had to sort of zoom out for a second and speak not so much as an individual, but as somebody who's part of a larger cloud, right, to what extent do you think that uh, just imagining and witnessing and reading about all the miracles, right, the extent to which the Jewish people really have defied nature, right, is also part of your sort of you know, intellectual motivation. You know, you, you go to lectures sometimes and even hear, let's say, non-Jewish thinkers or philosophers talking about, you know, the mystery of the Jews, right? So in terms of your own development, would you say that, you know, the miraculous nature of Jewish history, the extent to which we're living through historical times right now, I mean, right now, first time in thousands of years that Jewish people are back in their homeland, where we're literally living history. Just last week, someone sent me a video that there's a, a para aduma, right? A red heifer, which got to Israel. And on the news, they had the regular secular news. They had a whole segment about the para aduma. And like, irrespective of whether or not, you know, you're into the para aduma, it is pretty cool to be living in a time in human history where on the secular news channel, there's a whole segment about the para aduma right around Tishabot, <laughs> right? And there was a story last week, you know, all over the news that, you know, someone saw a fox on the Temple Mount, right? And their Gemara, you know, famous Gemara talks about the Rabbi Akiva, right. sees the fox walking out, his colleagues you know, start to cry, and he says, don't cry, because this is the beginning of a prophecy that's linked to a more you know, positive prophecy. And again, you can be a skeptic, but I think most of us say, wait a second, that, that's pretty remarkable to see a, uh, a fox on the Temple Mount, right, on Tisha B'av or Arab Tisha B'av, combined with the Para Aduma, combined with Jewish history. So to what extent do you really feel emotionally that much of what's driving you, right, is looking at the world and saying, wow, there's something divine, right, in, in this process? Look, it's an interesting question. I'm in awe of of Jewish history. And and by the way, I'm in awe of Jews at different periods of history. It's amazing to me that a Jew in the middle of Chmelnitsky's massacres, right? In 1651, 1655, they murdered Ukrainian Cossacks. It's interesting in the in the backdrop of everything going on today in terms of the war of the Ukraine and how much we support the Ukraine. 
to look a little bit at Ukrainian history. One of their heroes, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, there's a square named after him, there's statues to him, was a butcher. I mean, he murdered hundreds of thousands of Jews. That a Jew could wake up in the morning, put on his tefillin, and say, Ga'al Yisrael, that Hashem is the redeemer of it, is amazing to me. It's amazing to me, right? In the Holocaust. Today, it's just, I don't understand, to be honest, so I, I couldn't even begin to present their perspective how a human being looks at the world today and doesn't see Hashem's hand. It's beyond me. It's just beyond me. I mean, we're after 2,000 years. You know, we have a joke in Yeshiva. Um, it started because, you know, I sometimes give the boys tours of, you know, the old city or we go to the Golan and we visit Gamla and you, you can actually see the spot where the Romans breached the siege wall in Gamla or on Masada. And you stand there and, and you consider the Roman Empire, right? Pax Romana, thousand years. If somebody would have gone back 2000 years ago and said that one day the Jews will still be here speaking Hebrew, their ancient, ancient vernacular, and where are the Romans today? I mean, they would have looked at you like you're mad, and here we are. So the guys kind of took this on as like a funny ism of theirs, an id. And when they tour at the yeshiva and they go to places, they kind of send me little videos. Where are the Romans, right? And one of the ones that really got me was a few boys went to the Arch of Titus. Right? Titus was the son of Vespasian. He took over when Vespasian was made emperor. The Gemara actually describes this. And he was the general who basically conquered Jerusalem. And he led 10,000 slaves, um, sent them on a death march all the way back to Rome. And they built this arch in his honor, right? There's a famous Baz relief, a frez of... Roman legionnaires carrying what appears to be the menorah, um, you know, the candelabrum that was lit, that lit the candles in the, in the temple in the base of Mikdash. And uh, in fact, in 1948, um, the Roman Jewish community went to the Arch of Titus and said Hallel there, right? They said the special prayers of praise that we say when great events happen to us. And, and in 1968, this is also a longer story, but um, I ended up as a five-year-old kid um, in Rome with my parents leading a tour, my mother actually, and they took us to the Arch of Titus and somebody had scrolled there in graffiti, Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people lives, right? I'll give an example of this, um, sort of the, the, the line between serendipity and providence. Um, in, in 1967, so in 1967, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we realized that the war, the Six Day War, change the fundamentals of the game. And anybody with eyes open in his head and a pair of historical glasses looks at that story. The Jews, you know, sort of conquer the land of Israel. They return to the old city of Jerusalem, putting politics aside. It's just, that, that's a sea changing moment. So what people kind of tend to forget is the period leading up to the Six Day War. So Nasser kicks out the UN, right? Who were supposed to be a buffer zone in the Sinai in the South. He moves tanks and troops, hundreds of thousands, up to the border with what was then the nascent state of Israel. Remember, we were only around 19 years at that point. The Syrians, as part of a prior agreement, um, do the same thing, right? There begins heavy shelling from the Golan. Young Crown Prince Hussein of Jordan, who we know now from released papers, Levi Eshkol, who was then the prime minister, begged him not to get involved. He also, sort of an unprovoked artillery attack on Western Jerusalem. And the Jews are surrounded. 
And the airwaves are full of the Arabs saying, we're going to push them into the sea. This is going to be the shortest state in the history of the world and whatever. So the Israelis launched this bold initiative to take out the Israeli, the, the Egyptian and Syrian air forces on the ground. Now, unbeknownst to them, the, this is, I mean, this is documented. You can look this up. Unbeknownst to them, the defense minister of Egypt was planning a tour of the forward bases. And he's not going to drive in cheap from Cairo, like 10 hours all the way up to, you know, Birgafkaba. So he, you know, has a plane and they take a plane. I think it ended up being two planes. And he's going to, they're going to land in an airway and a couple of Air Force bases and review the troops. And it's a big public moment, the TV, you know, for his politics. And um, he invites all the bigwigs and the media journalists and the, the upper echelons of the army. This is going to be a big splash. But he's a little nervous because he knows that he's flying over Egyptian anti-aircraft gunners. They're not exactly the most highly motivated, highly trained intellectual bunch. So he's nervous that some idiot is going to be looking upwards and see a plane and shoot at him. So he gives an order that that morning, from 6 in the morning or from 7 in the morning, I think it was, uh, they're turning off all the anti-aircraft radar and all the gunners are to step down. And no one is to fire a shot without a direct order from the defense minister that morning, right? And because of that, at 7 a.m., the entire Egyptian anti-aircraft system in the Sinai goes offline. About 60 seconds before Israeli Air Force jets take off at 7 in the morning to run what ends up being two sorties. They took out 82% of the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. Mati Hod, who was the head of the aircraft, later admitted, they asked him, how did you, this is unbelievable. How did you do that? They thought it was like brilliant. It was an accident. It was totally an accident. They had no idea that that was going to happen. Now, if you look at an event like that and you think it's serendipity, okay, more power to you. I don't know. How, and that's just one example. We could fill the airwaves for months with the stories that, 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 that just the little bit that I know. How you look at that and imagine that's random is beyond my imagination. Now, what's interesting about this is, okay, so what do you do with that? And this, is, this takes us back to your question of the individual. There's a really powerful um, idea that comes, at least I heard it in the name of the Vilna Gaon, the Evan Shlema. The Vilna Gaon asked a really good question. You know, we kind of tend, those of us who consider ourselves to be religious thinkers, we kind of assume that, especially within this maximalist perspective, that, that the Torah will always give us an answer. But that's not true. There are lots of things the Torah will rule on. If you want to know how many cups of wine to have at the Seder, the Torah tells you, right? If you want to know whether you can eat this particular animal or that, be the Torah will tell you. But if you can't decide whether to be a doctor or a lawyer, the Torah doesn't tell you. What do you do when you face a significant decision? Back to my having to decide whether to go back to officer's course, you know, for and, and, and go back to the army for basically another two years or stay in yeshiva. And you could argue that both of them in the service of Hashem. How do you make a decision like that? So he says, basically, and I'm obviously summarizing, there are two components to any decision. There is objectively what is the right and the wrong decision, right? If you're not sure if you should be a lawyer or a doctor, objectively, it's likely that you're more suited to one than the other. But then there is the motivation for the decision. Why do you want to be a doctor or a lawyer? Says the Vilnagon, if you make objectively the wrong decision, but you make it for the right reasons, it'll work out. If you make the objectively right decisions, right, but you make it for the wrong reason, it probably won't work out. So be sure that when you make a decision, you're making it for the right reason. Now that we do have the capacity to do. If you become a doctor because you think you're going to make a lot of money, 
it's easy to make a case for saying, I'm not sure that's the best reason to become a doctor. But if you're better suited to be a lawyer, but you become a doctor because you think you can help people, that will work out. Now, I, 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 I don't claim, and I don't know that Deville Nagong claimed that this is 100% foolproof. If you decide to go back to officer's course, at least make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. When we look at the national story of the Jewish people, it challenges us to consider what's our role? Where do we fit on that bandwagon? How do we make sure that all of this is happening for the right reason? Do we live up to the challenge we're being presented with? It was so interesting you mentioned the example of the Six-Day War. So I, I definitely resonate with what you're describing. And I, I also feel like very much emotionally attached uh, to the mystery and the majesty of Jewish history, particularly as expressed uh, through contemporary events like the Six-Day War. I remember one time actually in Yeshiva, um, I was talking to some students about this particular point, the question of uh, Jewish history and being guided by the divine hand. And I mentioned the example of the Six-Day War. Now, I'm sure you can also attest to the fact that you know, teaching now in the era of Wikipedia is like a totally different experience because every time you're saying something, a student, you know, in theory, can just look it up and write and sort of challenge you based on Wikipedia posts. So I remember this one student, you know, challenged me by saying, oh, the miracle, oh, sorry, the Six-Day War, right? It wasn't a miracle. Now we understand X, Y, and Z based on some sort of critical theory, right? That it happened based on all different reasons and everything made sense, right? Now, I obviously didn't agree with the student, but I was thinking afterwards about sort of what motivates that perspective. And I'll tell you really where I'm getting, we're going with this question. You know, I spent a significant amount of time in yeshivot, uh, religious Zionist, centrist Orthodox, you know, yeshivot. And um, there really wasn't that much conversation about divine providence. You know, I feel like if you go to the Haredi community, granted, I don't live in the Haredi community, but I feel like if you just look online, look at the books coming out, you know, Hashkacha Pratis stories are like all the rage. Everyone's talking about Hashkacha Pratis stories <laughs> and like everybody has their own and you just go on social media and you see Hashkacha Pratis all the time. And I wonder sometimes if, you know, the modern Orthodox community, centrist Orthodox community, religious Zionist community, whatever you want to call it, right? It, it oftentimes can fall prey to a more sort of skeptical orientation, a more cynical orientation, which is sort of uncomfortable, you know, with sort of a more uh, robust type of God language. You know, I, I remember listening to listening to a, a lecture one time by a conservative rabbi from Los Angeles where he said, if you got up from your shul and you said, God loves you, people are going to think you're a Christian. If you say, Ahava Rabbah Tanu, you could pull it off, right? And he was bemoaning the fact that for some, that maybe because of the Christianization of the English language, right? Oftentimes people are uncomfortable talking about God. And one of the things that I've learned from hanging around and being, uh, you know, teaching with you and being around you for the past 15 years is that you, on the one hand, live in the modern Orthodox religious Zionist community, but you're unique in the sense that you're very much committed to a language which talks about Hashem all the time, very frontal way. I'm curious if you, if you can sort of address the question, why do you think it is? That sometimes even religious people, committed people, observant people have a hard time, right? Talking what we call uh, God talk, right? Talking about God's hand, about providence, about hashkacha. Like, what's holding them back? They, they have no problem talking about Hilchus Brachos. They have no problem talking about Hilchus Yomtov. But when it comes to talking about Hashem or God, they feel a little uncomfortable. So I'm curious if you have any framing for thinking about why that could be an issue. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, well, Here's a theory. I'm not sure if this is right, but it is a theory. Um, and I've had the experience you've described. I remember once uh, I was invited to give a six-part series in a particular community. And the assistant or associate rabbi asked me, you know, we were on Shlichud in Florida. We were sort of in Florida for three years. 
And I was going to go up every week uh, to New York and, and give a class in this particular community. And it was like, I don't know, Monday night or a Wednesday night lecture. And I was talking to the rabbi, the associate rabbi, you know, what are we going to do a series on? And I said to him, you know, I gave him a few options, you know, prayer, mitzvot, God. He said, God, what would you talk about for six weeks? I looked at him. I was like in shock. I said, well, you know, God is endless. <laughs> I said, okay, that's it. We're going to do a series on God. That's like that blew my mind that the rabbi could ask that question. All right. So I get there and the first class I get up and I did exactly what you just said. It was a surprisingly robust group. There were at least 100 people in the room, which I don't know, on a weekday night, I think is pretty good for a community, at least in the modern Orthodox world. And um, I said, uh, you know, I want you to know before we start that God loves you. There was a distinct discomfort. I remember one guy looks at his watch and I'm imagining he's thinking, oh my God, what did I get myself into? And I said to them, okay, now, I, I, how did that make you feel? Like it sounds pretty, and sure enough, somebody filled in the line, Christian, right? And I said, okay, so so then we get into the discussion. Now, first of all, it's interesting. The word God is a dangerous word. It carries a lot of baggage for people. I learned this, and I have to credit Rabbi Aaron, who's one of our co rosh yeshiva, um, because before we started Raita, I worked in an organization called Israelite. It was what you would call outreach, although that's a problematic term in my opinion. And he was really one of the first people who, who I met who took the philosophy of Soloveitchik and the philosophy of Cook uh, on God, on Hashem, and how Hashem runs the world and how we can develop a relationship with Hashem and made it palatable and, and manageable for really beginners. Now, these were adults, so they were very bright. Many of them were very bright, but they were beginners in this sense. So I guess that kind of colored my perspective. But I think, and this is a dangerous thing to say, it's a generalization. For the purpose of a podcast, you don't have time to get into this. I'm going to just generalize, even though I know that's not so simple. You know, if you ask the average person in the modern Orthodox world, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, about Einstein's theory of relativity, he'll know what it is. And he might even have what to say on it. He knows who Stephen Hawking is. He can tell you about, you know, the time-space continuum, um, you know. Chat GBT is all the rage now. People are trying it. They're developing it, right? The perspective, my, I have a nine-year-old grandson who's using Chat GBT, and we're all having discussions about the pros and cons of that scenario, right? But, but he's developing his relationship with computers and technology and whatever. I think that when, <clears throat> when, when in the modern Orthodox world, and I think in the Haredi world also, this is true, um, Again, I don't like those labels, but there's there's not a lot of discussion on how we develop a relationship with Hashem um, because people were too focused on sort of the minutiae and the details of getting on with life. And so what happens is you have a person who still has a first or a third grade perspective of what God is. So I think consciously or subconsciously, many people are uncomfortable with the fact that they have so little knowledge on the topic. You know, the world of Kabbalah, I'm not a Kabbalist, and I really have not really delved into Kabbalah. It's not really my thing, um, but I have a healthy respect for it. Um, but I grew up with an understanding that, you know, you don't study Kabbalah. Right? Kabbalah is basically the deepest mystical perspectives in Judaism. You don't actually learn Kabbalah from a book. Kabbalah, le Kabbal, means to receive. You have to have a teacher who teaches you Kabbalah, right? And we were taught, like, that's something for the mystics. You don't study that. 
But at the very least, I remember I had a Rebbe who said, because I asked this question once, who studies Kabbalah? Why would you? He said, well, first, if, if you want to know if somebody's a Kabbalist, open up any page of the Talmud, any page of Shas, and ask him to explain it. If you can't explain it, then he's not ready for Kabbalah. So that was like, you know, okay, so maybe when I'm 90. So, but one of the aspects of Kabbalistic study is the attempt to understand and develop a relationship with Hashem within the confines of the human sort of experience. And I think a lot of people haven't done that. You know, it's kind of like similar to the fact that, you know, we started a write down. So we used to have a very involved application. It, it evolved over the years. You may remember this from when you first came to write down, but one of the things that we used to do is we used to ask boys to write an essay on a question that bothered them in Judaism. And I remember that we had a boy who wrote an essay um, and then later I got into a discussion with him. One of the things that had turned him off to Judaism at a young age, and obviously he came back around, uh, was that he had asked a rabbi of his, a teacher of his, I don't understand why we wear tefillin. Why do we wear phylacteries? I don't know what phylacteries are, but that's what they translate tefillin as. But why do we wear tefillin? And the rabbi said, you know, I'm busy right now, but I'll get back to you. And the rabbi never got back to him. And then a week or two later, he went over to me and said, you know, I'm still waiting for you to tell me, like, why do we wear tefillin? And the rabbi kept dodging him. And this kid didn't let up. And after about a year, he finally gave up. And he said he was so angry that this rabbi cared about him so little that he wouldn't bother to take the time to explain to him why he wore tefillin. And I said to the student, I don't think you got that right. I don't think the rabbi didn't care about you. I just think he had no idea why we wear tefillin because nobody ever taught him. And he was uncomfortable with it. Now, what the rabbi should have said, and I'm obviously presuming in a, a position that I could be wrong about, if I'm right, what that rabbi should have said, you know, that's a great question. I actually, I've always worked felon. I just took it on faith. I never really thought about that. Let's study that together. That would have been the correct answer. So I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with this discussion, not so much because it sounds Christian, although the Christians have done a better job of promulgating this idea, I think part of it is also a discomfort with the fact that we don't know how to engage that conversation. And I think that's actually something we have to fix. There are lots mm -hmm. of ideas that, you know, in the period preceding redemption, people will, right, Magalia sowed, people will begin that, that there will be sort of a, a yearning, a desire to get into these topics. And I think we're seeing that as part of this, you know. It's interesting. Um, I very much relate to what you're saying. I think I think that for me, you know, having made Aliyah and seeing the different sort of um, metaphors and different types of language that people use in Israel versus in the U.S., I think that in the U.S., again, I could speculate as to why this is the case. I really don't know why. But I think that in Israel, particularly because Rav Cook is such a pronounced sort of intellectual uh, leader and sort of godfather of religious Zionism, and he himself is somebody who talks a very intimate language of divine connection right, and divine involvement in the world and sort of God leaving you know, uh, you know, the, the human history, particularly the Jewish people's history, I think that that resonates sort of and it trickles down more to sort of people's conception day in and day out. Um, and, and it allows them to sort of have the sense that not only are they living sort of the divine hand, but they're sort of more comfortable talking about it. Maybe I could just ask one last question. I, I'm curious, you know, one time we brought uh, to Oraita a very uh, serious Tom Chacham and a great philosopher, uh, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Siegel, come speak. He, I thought he had a very sharp insight. He was talking about uh, philosophy and the religious quest. And he said that if you learn a little bit of philosophy, you'll become a heretic. He said, but if you learn a lot of philosophy, you'll become a believer. Right? And I thought it was a very sharp insight about the way in which we experience information. You know, you mentioned before, like uh, certain people's knowledge of, let's say, new atheists or sort of, you know, you know, cutting edge scientists. And I feel like sometimes when people get exposure to the world of science superficially, 
right? They oftentimes think that, well, you know, this can explain everything. And we don't really need God. Now, I'm not at all a scientist, but I assume that if you did more research, right, and you actually started embracing a much more ambitious scientific endeavor, it would lead you to a, a conception or a perception of the world which recognizes more complexity and actually may make more room for the possibility of uh, divine involvement. I'm, I'm curious, as a, as a last question, if you think that, um, you know, our, our experience with knowledge, and our experience with science, in a certain sense, can sometimes color our, our willingness to really appreciate how much of our life is guided by the divine hand. And if the answer is yes, right, what's the best way? We're not going to, you know, disengage science. I know that your daughter is, is a doctor, right? So certainly science is something which is part of our world. So how do we, on the one hand, maintain that steady, healthy relationship with the scientific and natural world while not losing our connection to the broader conception of traditional faith? Another excellent question. Um, look, the world of science, we'll use science as an example. I think it's true for mathematics, true for literature. It's not limited to one area or one field of study. Um, but the world of science and the world of faith are two different disciplines that have no problem living in parallel universes, but they have different missions, different goals, and therefore they will never fully diverge. Um, uh, you know, at the beginning of the Torah, right? And eventually, God says, let there be light. Okay. Now, science is fascinated by that light. What's the nature of that light? Where did that light come from? How was it created? What's its, right? Judaism or religion in general is fascinated, is less concerned with how the light, I guess that's Kabbalah, Judaism is, 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 is concerned with Vayomer Elohim and God said. Now, if, if, you, if, you, if you see that light and you don't hear the and God said, you're missing almost the entire point from a Jewish perspective. But from a scientific perspective, that doesn't interest you. Science is not geared to explain why. That's not its purpose, right? It's, it's dealing with the how. And it's certainly not the what for. You know, I remember once I was at somebody's house for Shabbat. I was a scholar in residence and they had a coffee table book. It was a, a version of Carl Sagan's The Cosmos, it's a magnificent book. And it was um, filled with photos from the Hubble telescope, right? They had done this version of the book, incredible. So you're reading Carl Sagan's text alongside the photos of the Hubble telescope of exploding stars and, and, and the cosmos. It was amazing. And I, I couldn't put it down. And so I, I, I ended up sitting up till two in the morning. I lost my Shabbos nap that afternoon. I just, I went through most of the book. The part of the book that blew me away, at the end of the book, Carl Sagan writes, he writes this. <laughs> he says, if you think because of all this, because of the fact that the world, if it was positioned 100,000 miles further away, would burn up, or if it was 100,000 miles closer, it would be a lunar, you know, ice landscape. If you think because of this that I believe in divine providence, right? He basically says, don't be silly. And I'm sitting there, I'm reading this book. How do you not see God's hand in this book? That blew my mind. We, we look at things through the lens that we acquire. That's how we started this conversation, right? It, 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 it's not accidental that the single character trait that's most critical in developing a healthy sense of faith and a balance with what we're meant to do in this world is humility. 
the ability to be humble and to say, I don't know anything, and I certainly know very little, and hearing different perspectives is valuable, and maybe I'm wrong. That's a healthy perspective. There's a hubris that comes into play very often. I'm not sure that's linked to a particular discipline. I think it's more about personality. And it behooves us to sort of view that world and the synthesis of that world and recognize that we could be wrong. It's true when I look at the secular world. It's true when I look at the Haredi world. It's just a healthy way to look at things, right? Well, Rabini, I would say, first of all, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast again. You know, I started uh, working with you 15 years ago in Oraita, and I, I learned a ton uh, from working with you, but particularly this issue, this issue of divine providence. I, you know, I came from a Beit Midrash, which had a very different perspective, and uh, your perspective really opened me up to sort of seeing the world a different way, and it's sort of, I really appreciate that may have been providential, right? But the point is, I really appreciate uh, <laughs> into which, okay. uh, I extend, the extent to which uh, your perspective has really sort of provided a very interesting and compelling view. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was great. Oh, this was so much fun. I'll do this again anytime. Thank you so much for inviting me and look forward to continuing this discussion. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraitah.